when was the last time uh, you got completely tongue-tied, found yourself in a situation where you just uh, had absolutely no idea what to say next? <laughs> I remember, it's about 12 or, I don't know, 15 years ago, whatever it was, I was enrolled in a, a motorcycle safety class uh, with my buddy Sean. We were going to go to Niagara College. We were going to learn how to ride motorcycles together. And, uh, and I remember when we decided we were going to go do this together, uh, I said to Sean, well, I'll just call from work and I'll, I'll enroll us both and pay for it on the credit card and you can pay me back later and whatever. And so that's exactly what I did. And I called Niagara College and I, you know, uh, enrolled for the both of us. And about two weeks, three weeks before the course, something like that, Sean calls me up and he's like, dude, I can't go. It's like, I got to bail. I could work or something. I can't remember what it was. And I said, no problem. That sucks, but no problem. I said, I'm just going to call. I'll call Niagara College and I'll cancel for you because it's on my credit card. So I'm, I'm the one who needs the refund. So there's no point in you calling. I'll call and I'll cancel you. And so I picked up the phone. I called Niagara College. And I didn't, I didn't know what was going through my head. But while the phone was ringing, the thought occurred to me, I can't cancel Sean because I'm not Sean. I don't have permission to cancel his tuition. That's not going to work. I'd better pretend to be Sean when she picks up the phone. <laughs> you can see where this is headed. So she picks up the phone, and, and I explain the whole situation. This I said, Sean Moffat, and uh, I registered for this course. I can't take it. I need to cancel. Paid with credit card, and uh, I just want to cancel my tuition. And she was like, that's okay. No problem, Sean. Can I have the number? And I said, okay, here's the number. And I gave her the number. And she says to me, so, okay, so just before I put all this through, I just need to verify that it's really you. So uh, what's your birthday, Sean? Dead silence on my end of the phone. Like, dead silence for like 10 seconds. And finally, I said to her, you know, you think that'd be a piece of information that I would know, but I don't. Um, and I ended up having to spill the beans about the whole thing and about what I had done. And the, and she let me the cancel the tuition anyway. Like she didn't even really care. I didn't need to do the whole charade anyhow, but it was one of those moments. And, and I don't have very many. There's maybe been like five in my whole life where I didn't know what I was going to say next. And that was one of those moments where I was just absolutely, I have no idea what to say now. And I know that you've experienced the same thing, and I, and I have too, but experience the same thing in circumstances where it matters a whole lot more than being on the phone with Niagara College and getting caught in a lie. You've been in situations, and so have I, where somebody has uh, dropped a bomb, a, a personal confession or a revelation or something about their life, and you were so caught off guard, so taken aback, you had no idea what to say. Or somebody asked a question. A lot of these situations come up, I think, sometimes in our faith. And somebody asks a question and it's just like above your pay grade and you just have no idea what to say. Or somebody tells you about a hurt they've experienced or how they're hurting right now. And you're just watching them melt down in front of you and you've no idea what to say. What do you do in those moments? Especially moments of faith when you get completely tongue-tied and just have no idea what, what to say. This is what Jesus begins to address I was with his disciples in 
in Matthew chapter 10, in the text we're going to look at today, we've been in this series where Jesus is um, sending out his disciples on a critical mission to be Jesus, to, to do what he does to a world in pain. Jesus has been overwhelmed by the scope and the size and the depth of the need that he's seen all around him. People being beaten up and knocked down by life, people living disconnected from God and disconnected from themselves and disconnected from each other and disconnected from the world. And, and so Jesus sends his disciples into the world to do what he's been doing. Two responsibilities, to tell people that the healing love of God is breaking into the world, that God wants to reconnect them to him so that they can love and feel loved by God again and reconnect them to themselves so they can experience healing both in their soul and in their bodies so that he can reconnect them to each other and we can live in healthy relationships with each other and he can reconnect us to the world so that we can have hope rather than despair when we look at the world, when we look at the future. And then, not just to talk about it, to talk the talk, but to go and walk the walk, to to be the healing love of God in people's lives, to make those things real in the lives of people in pain all over the place, wherever we encounter them. And, And this whole series now is about Jesus giving his disciples instructions about what it looks like to live life on that kind of mission, to be Jesus to a world in pain, to make that your only priority in life. And last week we looked at the first instruction, which was that if you're going to live a life of mission, you have to choose mission ahead of money. You have to care about the mission of Jesus rather than caring about the money that we could earn or have or save or spend or whatever. We've got to learn to live lives in dependence on God to provide everything that we need and to be content with everything that God provides so that our sole focus can be on being Jesus to a world in pain. Well, here's... The second instruction that Jesus offers his disciples, starting in verse 16, it says this, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. This this verse kind of becomes a heading that hangs now over all of the rest of what Jesus is going to say to his disciples, to his, his followers or the interns, the ones who are learning from him to be like him. Um, Because all of the rest of this passage in some way is about this reality that Jesus says to his disciples, the mission that you're heading out on is going to be hard. He says, don't kid yourself. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Uh, It's hardly a, a more stark picture of danger to an ancient audience than a sheep, a helpless, defenseless, senseless, stupid sheep. Sheep have absolutely zero offensive or defensive weapons at their disposal. None. They don't have horns. They don't have quills. They can't create stink like a skunk. They don't have body armor like a rhinoceros. They just, they've got absolutely, they don't have a sting in their tail. They don't have venom in their teeth. They don't, they, they got nothing. Sheep have absolutely nothing. And there is nothing more dangerous than to be a sheep surrounded by a pack of ravenous wolves. And yet Jesus says, don't kid yourself. If you're going to live a life on mission, this is someone of what it's going to be like. It's not going to be a stadium tour with venues filled with raging, raving fans who are eager to hear the good news of that Jesus, that, that he's bringing God's healing love into the world. No, no, you're going to be surrounded by people 
who are hostile to the message of Jesus. Not everybody, of course. Even Jesus, he preached and sometimes preached to massive crowds. But there will always be some who are hostile to the message. So Jesus says, as you go, you have to know that. Don't be naive. He says, be shrewd as serpents. In the ancient world, the serpent was a symbol that was associated with cunning or craftiness or shrewdness. And, and all of those are kind of negative words in English. In the positive would be something like wisdom or prudence. I think, I think ancient people saw the snakes, you know, hiding in the tall grass from predators and prey, patiently waiting for exactly the right moment to strike. And they just thought, these snakes are smart in how they do this, in how they go about hunting their prey. And snakes became a symbol for, for that kind of shrewdness, that kind of cunning and craftiness of people who are smart about how they live. But he says at the same time, you have to be innocent as doves. The dove was uh, an image of perfection, of purity, of gentleness and meekness. Um, it became, after Jesus, a symbol for every kind of Christian virtue. And when he says be innocent as doves, the word innocent just means pure. To be, in what Jesus is saying is be blameless. Live with integrity. I mean, here's the, here's the framework that Jesus offers his disciples that we're going to talk about for the, these last three Sundays. He says, I, I want you to live on mission, but I want you to be smart about how you do it. I don't want you to be naive. I don't, you want, to be, I don't want you to be foolish. I don't want you to blindly and naively walk into conflict. I don't want you to make dumb decisions and, and make me and the church and you look stupid in front of the world. I want you to be smart about how you live. But at the same time, being cunning without integrity just becomes like sneakiness, like something icky. He says, at the same time, you got to be smart, but you got to be pure. You got to live with integrity so that you don't scandalize the church. You don't scandalize the reputation of Christ and destroy the good news of Jesus before it ever has the chance to get out there. Jesus says here, he says, I want you to be smart. And I want you to have integrity because it's going to be tough out there. And this is what he says about the circumstance that they were facing. Verse 17, he says, be on your guard. Literally, uh, in the Greek, it says, be, oh, be wary of people. Kind of be suspicious. You know, just be aware that there are people who are out to get you. He says, because you'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. And on my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. The councils Jesus are talking about are the, the local councils uh, in the Jewish villages. Every village had a council of 23 men that acted sort of like a municipal council and a local court, and it was connected to the synagogue. It was all about adjudicating uh, matters of justice that pertain to the Jewish law. And that council had the right to find somebody guilty. And if they found somebody guilty, they had the right to flog them at the synagogue. There was an officer of discipline and he would 
whip people with a scourge that had four tails and then things embedded in the tails or whatever. And there would be three judges presiding over the beating and the one would read scriptures aloud while the whipping was going on. Presumably the scriptures that this person had violated, the reason they were being disciplined. The second would call the blows. Now, again, again. And the third one would count the blows because they were only allowed to give up to 39 lashes. Jesus says there are going to be times when you're going to be standing in front of those councils and they're going to be threatening you with a whip. He says there are going to be times where you don't just run afoul of the religious institutions, you're going to run afoul of the secular government as well. When he says governors and, and kings, he's talking not about you know, local Jewish legal matters, he's talking about Roman legal matters. The governors were the ones positioned by Caesar to oversee, to kind of keep the peace in the entire province and the weapon they had at their disposal was the death penalty. Pontius Pilate, the man who sentenced Jesus to death was one of these governors. The kings uh, were kind of local client kings. They were ethnically Jewish or related to the Jews and they were given responsibility over segments of Israel. Israel had four so-called kings, all from the Herod family, who, were, who answered to Caesar and who were responsible to keep the peace as well. Jesus says, listen, if you're living a life on mission, there are times when it's going to get you in trouble with the religious institutions who don't like the way you're going about your, the business of your faith. There are times when you're going to run afoul of the secular institutions and find yourself in trouble when it comes to the government. And in each case... I want you to be as shrewd as a serpent and as innocent. I don't want you to be dumb in how you engage in your defense in that moment. And I don't want you to have anything that could be brought as a trumped up charge against you. Because there are these moments that are coming, and this is the point, where you're going to be called on to explain or defend your faith in a hostile environment. That's just par for the course if you're living a life on mission. Even in North America, even in the 21st century, we don't do a lot of whipping anymore, not a lot of chopping off of hands or that kind of thing. We live in a culture that, that is proud of its freedom of religion and, and where tolerance is a virtue and it means that we face that kind of hostility differently, but don't, be, don't kid yourself. If you are living a life of proactive faith often for long enough, you'll face the hostility from a coworker who just read Christopher Hitchens and who now believes that your religion poisons everything. From the classmate who read a Newsweek article at Christmas uh, mocking the Bible and now she mocks you because you read the thing. You'll face it from family members who don't believe in Jesus and who can't believe that you've been brainwashed into believing and who think it's their duty to deprogram you. You'll face it from friends who've been hurt by the church, who dropped out long ago and who are now angry and disillusioned and intent on taking it out on you. You will uh, receive hostility from other religious folk, from other Christians who will accuse you of not believing in the right way or behaving in the right way, who question your theology or your motives and 
because you're so focused on the mission. You'll face it at, at times when you are the only Christian in your environment. You're like the token faith person and now you get to answer for the sins of all of the rest of us. You get to answer for every pedophile priest and every crooked televangelist and every religious hypocrite that these people have ever known. You'll face the hostility. In fact, just this last week, the Christian high school that our denomination founded in St. Catharines was dragged before a human rights tribunal because an atheist uh, man in Grimsby felt that the existence of the high school was a violation of his rights as an atheist. And someone had, on behalf of the school had to stand up and give an answer for why the school does the way the school does. You will face the hostility. Oftentimes though, those moments come, but I think they're fewer and further between. Oftentimes, I think we face conversations that I think could fall under this same category when we, we find ourselves in that place where we just don't know what to say. I mean, often in those other circumstances, we don't know what to say when somebody's accusing you and attacking you and whatever. But, but it's true even when you're sitting with a friend who's got doubts and questions about faith and everyone seems more complicated than the last and, and it's not long before you feel like this is way above my pay grade and you just don't know what to say or when you're, when you're sitting with the friend who's hurt, who's been devastated and you want to say something to console them, to sympathize with them, you want to find a way to pray for them and you just have no idea what to say. When you find yourself in those tricky conversations about marijuana or sex or the person who wants to leave their spouse and you just want to say something to help your friend make a good decision in faith and you don't know what to say. Or when you're talking to a neighbor who doesn't believe or who's got strong opinions about faith and all you want is for them to love Jesus like you love Jesus and you just don't know what to say. You live a life on mission with the purpose of telling people about God's healing love and being God's healing love in their lives. And you're going to find yourselves in these circumstances, these conversations that are tough and awkward and tense and sometimes hostile. And you're going to need to say something. And if you're anything like me, you can get really tongue-tied in those scenarios. It can be nerve-wracking. It was terrifying for the disciples. I mean, a lot of these guys were uneducated men. They weren't theologians. They weren't scholars. They hadn't graduated from any kind of rabbinical school. These were just, a lot of them, just good old country boys who decided to follow Jesus one day. And all of a sudden, they find themselves, because of their following Jesus, standing in front of a panel of judges all by themselves with no defense attorney, no public defender. That wasn't a part of the system. But standing across from a professional prosecutor who was trained in the law and trained in oratory and who was known and renowned for the rhetoric and the power of persuasion and they're standing there thinking, how am I going to save my neck in this scenario? What on earth could I possibly say that is going to rescue me from this situation? And this is what Jesus says to them and to us when we find ourselves in those situations where you just don't know what to say. He says this, but when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, 
For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Jesus says, right at that exact moment, don't worry. God's got your back. Like we said last week, if, if you worry about the mission, God will worry about you. Because it's God's business to take care of the people who are taking care of God's business. He says, don't worry. You don't have to freak out. You don't have to wonder what's going to happen next. You don't have to let anxiety and fear grip you. You don't have to worry about saying the wrong thing. He says, because you will be given what to say. You don't have to worry about whether or not you can come up with the right ideas or the right arguments or whether you can come up with the right clever uh, argumentation or wording to, to kind of make your point in, in such a way that you convince the other person. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to think about that. You don't have to worry about how you're going to say it, he says. You don't have to worry about your posture, about being persuasive, about being articulate, about being clear. You don't have to worry about being loving and gentle instead of offensive or defensive or getting all rattled. You don't have to worry. He says, don't worry about it. God has got your back. God will take care of you in those moments. He'll take care of you. He will give you what to say. In fact... It won't even be you that's doing the saying. God is going to make sure that you have the words because God is just going to take over your mouth and he's going to start doing the talking. Now, I'm going to, I'll tell you, it's not going to feel like it. You're not going to feel like all of a sudden you're channeling God and, and you're spitting out his words and he's just sort of, you won't feel like a robot that's been taken control of by an alien force or whatever. You're not going to feel like it. It's not like you're all of a sudden going to have all the answers. It's not like you're all of a sudden going to know the right arguments. It's not like you're going to even convince the other person necessarily of your perspective. It's not like... Um, you're going to suddenly become suave and articulate and clear if that's not who you are anyway. It's not, it, you're, you're not going to feel like God is speaking through you. But Jesus says you just have to trust that God in that moment is speaking through you. Even if you don't have all the answers, even if he doesn't fill your brain with all the right things to say and so you're crystal clear, whatever, you just have to trust that what you're saying is exactly the right thing said at exactly the right time to exactly the right person to accomplish exactly what God wants to accomplish. Because God is at work through you. Remember the first thing that happens in this passage in Matthew 10 is Jesus calls his disciples to himself. And what does he do? What does he do? He gives them his authority. Do you remember how we defined authority two weeks ago? It is the power and the ability to act in a way that reshapes people's realities for Jesus' sake. That's authority. And Jesus in this whole section has been living with authority. It was by the authority of Jesus that lepers were cleansed and the sick were healed and storms were calmed and demons were cast out and sins were forgiven and paralytics got to walk and deaf people got to hear and blind people got to see and a dead girl got raised from the dead. It was Jesus' authority flowing through him that accomplished all that often by the word of his mouth. 
But even before Matthew 8 and 9, where all those stories illustrate Jesus' authority, in Matthew 5 to 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing the life of the kingdom, and it says at the end of Matthew 7 that all the crowds were amazed at his, the authority of his words. Jesus' words and his deeds had authority, and he called his disciples to himself, and he put all of that authority on them, the authority that flows through them by the power of the Holy Spirit living in them, living in you. That's who Jesus was. He was God come to earth, living as a human being, filled with the life of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, exercising the authority of God in everything that he said and did in a way that transformed lives and the world. And then he sends us out with his authority, filled with his spirit so that we have his power and authority to do and to say what Jesus did and said in a way that transforms lives and our little part of the world. Jesus says, that's what this is going to be. You're going to be talking, but it's not you. It's going to be the spirit of your father. I love that right at that moment he calls God the father. Reminds us that God is the God who loves us. Who wants what's best for us. That God is the God who gives good gifts to his children. Who keep on asking and who keep on seeking and who keep on knocking. That God is the one who loves the world. That he sent Jesus to be the healing love of God enacted in in space and time on our planet. And then Jesus, because God loves us, Jesus sends us into the world to do the same thing out of love. It is the God who loves you who won't abandon you and who will give you the words so that in just the right moment, in that high stakes, high pressure moment, when you feel like you need to say exactly the right thing to explain or defend or convince or persuade somebody about your faith in Jesus Christ, that's the moment when God starts speaking through your mouth. It's exactly that moment when you start to feel like it's gonna take a miracle, like all the power of the God of heaven flowing through your mouth to convince this person of the love of Jesus Christ for them. That's exactly the moment when the God of heaven begins to speak through you. If, I would think Jesus would wanna say, if we keep on asking God will give us the words. If we keep on seeking, we will find the right thing to say. If we keep on knocking, the door will be open for God's healing love to flow through our conversation into the other person's life. And we won't even know the ways God is radically reshaping the other person's reality by what he's been able to say through us because we asked him to speak in, through us in that moment. A lot of years ago, my younger brother moved to the East Coast to go to school in, at Acadia. And while he was there, he met a girl named Julie. And he and Julie became friends and friendship led to conversation and conversation you know, led to conversations about faith. And after a while, Joel and Julie were engaged in tons of conversations about Jesus and faith, and he was trying to answer her questions and so on. And, and after a while, Joel decided to you know, bring in reinforcements, and so he connected Julie with my mom. And Julie would talk to my mom, and Joel would talk to Julie, and then Joel would talk to my mom, and they, would just, they just had this conversation of faith going. And I remember my mom telling me one time that Joel had said to her, 
said, Mom, I just feel like I'm screwing this up. I feel like every time we get into a conversation, I say the wrong thing. I, say, I feel like every time she asks a question, I give her a, a dumb answer. I feel, like, I feel like every time we talk, I'm just not clear enough or articulate enough. I'm just, I'm sure I'm confusing her more than I'm helping her. And I feel like she's probably now further away from faith than she was before we even met. My mom said to Joel, it's funny that you should say that. She said, because I got an email from Julie this week who said she just can't believe how thankful she is that God's brought you into her life because you have all of these conversations and, and every time you speak, it just, faith makes so much sense to her. And every time you answer her questions, it just, the penny drops and she just understands something that she was never able to understand before. And she was just saying in the email that she feels like she's probably closer to faith now than she ever has been in her entire life. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. Having enough faith, having enough trust in God, in in who he is and what he wants for you and me and what he wants for our world to put ourselves out there intentionally, to put ourselves in situations where we're having conversations about faith with people where he's allowed to speak using our mouths in a way that has the power and the ability to radically reshape somebody's reality. So here's my question for you. And it's a question we put in the mini mag, and if you don't have a mini mag, we'll just put it right here on the screen. Um, What are the conversations that you need to have? What words could you share this week to bring God's healing love into a world in pain. I want you to take a minute, just think about this. Write something down in your mini mag if you have one. Who do you need to talk to this week that you could allow God to use your mouth to bring his healing love into contact with their life? Maybe it is somebody who's got questions and you can just sit down and patiently listen even if you don't have all the answers but to pray that God will guide the conversation to where he wants it to go maybe um, maybe it'll be a conversation that you know you need to have with somebody because you want to talk to them about some of the choices that they're making and invite them to make better faith choices with their life. Maybe it's somebody who's hurting and you know that you have the opportunity to speak a word of hope and healing and encouragement or to to sit down and pray with them. Just allow the prayers, uh, the words from God to flow through you in the form of a prayer. Write it down. Who who can you speak healing love into this week? Maybe it's a conversation of relational reconciliation. Um, Maybe it's a conversation with a neighbor to invite them to consider embracing the love of God in their life. Who do you need to talk to this week? 
scary, terrifying, <laughs> worrying, anxious, anxiety, absolutely. But trusting that God is going to speak through you. And, and here's the second question. What can you do to commit to having this conversation this week? Do you need to put it in your uh, calendar? Get a reminder? Do you need to text them and, and set something up? Do you need to maybe plan the first couple sentences to get you into the conversation and then take your hands off the wheel and, and say, God, I want you to guide, it, guide us to where you want us to go. What do you, what do you, who do you need to talk to? And how are you going to get there this week? Because if you worry about the mission, God will worry about the words. If you're willing to put yourself out there to be used as a mouthpiece for the healing love of God, God will fill your mouth with his healing love to pour into somebody else's life. And that's my prayer for you and for us that we would become the kind of community that doesn't just talk about it. I mean, that doesn't just do it but that talks about it as well. Let's pray together. Father, I'm encouraged to read in the scriptures that even people like the Apostle Paul, probably the greatest missionary the church has ever known, needed to ask other people to pray that he would have the right words to say, that he would communicate clearly and effectively. And I believe that Jesus in these times of retreat when he went off by himself, prayed for some of the same things. And, and Father, I just pray now for us, for all the conversations that are tied to our community, I pray, Father, that you would fill us with the words. You'd fill us with your courage. You'd fill us with the kind of faith that trusts in you as the Father to give good gifts to those of us who love you and to trust that you go with us as we go into the conversations that you're carrying us into this week. Make us courageous and faithful. And may your healing love pour through our lives into the lives of those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.